Every country has its sort of mytholo mythologized histories. It's an important part of civic nationalism, national identity, and explaining how countries and governments come into being. And in the US, the, uh, the US founding myth has been particularly strong. Um, so traditionally, the story of the American Revolution is of 13 British colonies fighting against the tyrannical oppression of the British government and King George III. It is the story of a people whose affinity to Britain was tenuous at best. David Ramsey, one of the first historians of the American Revolution, wrote in 1789 uh, that colonial America was, quote, that in colonial America, quote, the affection for the mother country and attachment to their sovereign as far, it was, as, far as it was a natural position wore away in subsequent generations till at last it had scarcely any existence. So the revolution began with the Stamp Act of 1765 with the cries of no taxation without representation and culminated in 1776 with the Declaration of Independence and the birth of a new republic. And so, so the American story goes. Um, the US founding myth has persisted because it is such a fun fundamental part of American culture and identity. You see it in films like The Patriot, uh, The Last of the Mohicans, which are great movies, but not so great histories. And the fact is that the American colonies were only 13 out of 26 that made up British America. Um, and the American Revolution has important implica implications for the colonies that didn't rebel, and particularly for the colonies that ended up forming uh, Canada. So uh, throughout the Revolutionary War, colonists who opposed independence joined regiments to fight against the Patriot rebels. And these loyalists have often been characterized as wealthy elites, recent uh, immigrants to America. They certainly included these people. But many were the descendants of the first settlers. Uh, they were shopkeepers, farmers. They were the educated and the illiterate, white and black. Uh, at the war's end, nearly 75,000 loyalists left the United States for the West Indies and the colonies of what is now Canada. And that's actually what this painting depicts. It's Britannia welcoming back her loyal sons and daughters back into the empire. And you see the whole range of magistrates, widows, and everybody else. Um, the influx of loyalists gave a significant population boost to the northern colonies of British America and resulted in the creation of new colonies such as New Brunswick in 1784. Uh, and the arrival of the loyalists reinforced an identity uh, defined in opposition to the US, one based on loyalty to Britain. Uh, John McMullen in his 1868 edition of the History of Canada, which was written just after Canadian Confederation, uh, wrote that around the time of the Stamp Act, quote, although America was already heaving in the throes of revolution, the people of Canada remained peaceable and tolerably contented. So the Canadian story goes. Um, so in 1765, due to mounting debt from the Seven Years' War, Parliament passed the American Stamp Act, which essentially taxed all paper goods in the American colonies um, and required stamps like these. Uh, although Parliament had passed legislation concerning the colonies for over a century by this point, all that legislation had been essentially trade regulations, and this was really the first time that it was a tax intending to raise revenue. In the United States, we're taught that the Stamp Act crisis is essentially the start of the revolution, that it united the 13 colonies and gave rise to the Sons of Liberty, etc. Well, the Stamp Act actually affected all of British America. So Nova Scotia, Quebec, um, the 13, East and West Florida, the British West Indies. And as you can see from the stamps here, one actually says America and the other one actually says West India. So you can see that these were designed to be used throughout all of what made up uh, British America. The Stamp Act uh, led to widespread protests in the colonies that became the United States and in the other colonies. Um, but the Stamp Act has been thoroughly, because the Stamp has been thoroughly emphasized in American history and it's the start of the revolution, it's essentially been ignored in Canadian history and uh, to a lesser extent in uh, West Indian history. Uh, 
the entire newspaper industry was affected by the Stamp Act. So every issue had to be printed, or was supposed to be printed, on official paper. Many published notices announcing that it would uh, cease printing in protest. And I think this is a really striking example because it's the English language notice in a German language paper from Philadelphia. Um, others printed uh, their own versions of the stamps, like this, Skull and Crossbones, uh, and sort of were mourning and announcing the death of their paper, so expiring in the hope of resurrection. Um, but the 13 colonies weren't actually alone in this, and this is what's actually really fascinating to me. Uh, so in Nova Scotia, the Halifax Gazette, which was the only newspaper printed in that colony, it was printed on stamp paper, but the printer often defaced the stamps, as you can see uh, here, so where he's has a woodcut of a devil jabbing an upside down stamp with a pitchfork. So you can tell he wasn't particularly pleased with the Stamp Act either. Um, so resistance to the Stamp Act ended up becoming violent. Uh, so in Boston, Massachusetts, rioters hung effigies of the stamp distributor by a noose demanding his resignation. Uh, one observer wrote to his brother, the effigies were brought by the mob through the main street to the townhouse, carried it through and proceeded to the supposed stamp office near Oliver's Dock, and in less than half an hour laid it even with the ground. Not contented with this, they fell upon the stamp master's dwelling house, broke glass casements and all, also broke open the doors, ended the house, spoiled a good part of the furniture. So that's what this letter is basically saying. Uh, but Bostonians also destroyed their lieutenant governor's mansion, so they also were clearly not happy with all of this. Uh, historians have mostly ignored the effects of the Stamp Act in Canada, but in October 1765, Nova Scotians also hung effigies of their stamp distributors, demanded their resignation, uh, and then by December, Nova Scotia stamp uh, officer, main stamp officer, had hired 15 soldiers to guard his house and his person in response to threats, just like in Boston. Um, in the British West Indies, the colonists of the Leeward Islands responded with basically the same intensity as Bostonians, ransacking the homes of the distributor, his deputy, confiscating the stamps and burning them. And actually, they successfully forced their stamp officers to resign, as in Boston. Um, but the colonial response, as it turns out, was not really all that unique in and of itself. So in 1763, two years before the Stamp Act was passed, Parliament passed a controversial tax on cider. I really won't get into the particulars of it, but basically the, it taxed the farmers who made the cider and allowed the tax collectors to essentially go into their homes unannounced. So the people of the West Country also articulated constitutional defenses uh, against the Cider Act and reacted violently. Um, they made effigies of the prime minister, tax officials, which they marched through towns and villages and then burned publicly. Uh, people refused to make cider, and in several cases, excise men were actually pelted with stones. <laughs> so they also were not very happy about that. Uh, and what I really like about this is that every American textbook will have a picture of this teapot as sort of an example of, of American defiance. And well, it turns out that actually isn't all that unique either, um, as you can see from the Cider Act teapot. Um, so the Stamp Act prompted colonists throughout British America to articulate constitutional arguments defending what they believed to be their rights as Englishmen and in many instances led to public and often violent demonstrations. Col uh, colonists adopted the same rhetoric as other British protesters, emphasized the British Constitution, Magna Carta, the rights of freeborn Englishmen. So my question is, was the Stamp Act really revolutionary if forms of protest and violent rioting occurred throughout British America in areas that didn't declare independence in 1776? The Sons of Liberty, which were instrumental in orchestrating many of uh, the demonstrations, thought of themselves as defending the British Constitution. Um, and in this letter the Sons of Liberty of, uh, to the Sons of Liberty of Boston, the Sons of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which are both in New England, which is supposed to be a really radicalized region, uh, agreed to coordinate with organizations in Connecticut and New York only because they had, quote, 
fully declared their unshaken loyalty to our rightful sovereign king, George III, and the resolution to maintain and support his crown, the respectful submission to his government according to the known and just principles of the British Constitution. So the American reaction in 1765 and 1766 was, was an assertion of British identity, not really a rejection of it. And so that's my talk.